0: If you found Hebrews 11, why don't you stand with me? We'll read together God's Word. Let me give you a little context before I read. Hebrews 11, perhaps the most famous of all the chapters of this epistle, Hebrews 11, the famed Hall of Faith chapter. It's like walking through a uh, like a portrait gallery where we're going to start seeing all these profound men of faith, particularly from the Old Testament. This chapter, this Passage we're going to study today, beginning in verse 4 and going through verse 6. I want you to see it in context. So I'm going to get a running start and read from verse 1. And you'll notice verse 6 is not the end of the paragraph. Verse 7 is. We're going to leave verse 7 on the table and come back to it next week because it speaks of a third man, Noah, that you'll understand why we need to give him his own attention next Sunday. Today we're going to look at two famed men of the Old Testament, Abel. And the next one is probably not as famous to you. He will be after today, the man named Enoch. We're going to see Abel and Enoch. And you notice how I say it. That's how you say Enoch. It's like you're clearing your throat. So I want you all to say that with me. Enoch, as we read Hebrews 11, beginning in, I'm going to start in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And now we get to the portrait gallery. Let's look first at Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The second portrait, Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he wasn't found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now hone in with me on verse 6. Let this weigh upon your heart, for it says, and without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God, he's got to believe first that He exists, and second that He rewards those who seek Him. Why don't you join me now as we pray? Let's ask God to help me rightly divide this word For you, his people. Father in heaven, would you come now and again, by the power of your spirit, speak to your people? And would you use me? Oh Lord, I feel it acutely today. Use me in spite of me as a means to this end. I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there's a word in this text that should have arrested you. I slowed down when I got to it. I wonder if it struck you. There's a word we just read that should have gripped you, should have made you take a second thought. It's the word impossible. If you got a pen, underscore that word impossible in verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. We throw the word impossible around a lot, but the truth is we rarely mean it. You may say, man, that's impossible, but what you really mean is it's improbable. I used to think it was impossible for me to have ever run a marathon. And now I did it, and it felt it the whole way through, but I did it. My friends, that is not impossible. It was improbable. Some of you throw around the word impossible, and what you really mean is not just improbable. Maybe it just feels implausible, you know, like sending a man to the moon. Who would have dreamt it? If you were uh, living in the early 20th century, just the sh- some of you were uh, consciously aware of those decades prior to landing on the moon in July of 69, and thinking, "How could this be possible? This seems impossible." It wasn't impossible. It was implausible. But when God Almighty the almighty creator of heaven and earth, he who never speaks falsehood, when he comes before us and declares with full assurance, without faith, it is impossible to please him. He has not fallen victim to that which we so often stumble into, lazily using language. For he has not said it is improbable that you will please God apart from faith. He has not said it is implausible that you will please God apart from faith. He says with the full assurance that only can come from he whose words were spoken and all creation came into existence. My friends, dear church Hickory Grove, it is impossible for you to please God apart from faith. To attempt... The improbable, that's kind of brave. It's daring, but to attempt the impossible is insanity. Remember Albert Einstein famously remarked, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. You realize that is the great stream of history. If you just go look at the great stream of world history, it's one raging torrent of insanity. Just come with me for a moment and stand on the banks of this river. And I want you to look out with me and just see all the things floating down the river. If you watch, you're gonna notice Hinduism just floating down this raging torrent with endless countless millions of precious souls who are longing to please their pantheon of 300 million gods with all of these sacrificial rites, never to please him. For it is impossible without faith to please him. Watch in this torrent and you will see the countless millions of sincerely uh, devout Muslims following this faith of Islam, trying to appease Allah, trying to keep the Quran, and it is impossible to please Him. You stand on this bank and you will notice that this river rushes down throughout the ages of history. You will see Buddhism. You will see even various sects of Christianity like Catholicism that think if we just do these things, we shall indeed please him. And there is a warning sign. This book stands as a warning sign to you on the banks of this river. Don't come in. Don't try to cross it. Don't dip your toe in. And for many of you, you have ignored this sign. It's standing beside you, and you have your toe dipped in this raging torrent. Some of you that have walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for years, who know the gospel that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you know it, and yet you just can't help but dip your toe in this stream of history. For you know this by experience. You students surely know this. It is so much easier to go with the flow, is it not? Oh, life is just, it just seems easier when you just kind of go with the flow. And so you dip your toe in thinking, oh, this water's not that bad. I mean, I get the gospel, but surely, surely, my very presence here, surely, who I am. Surely, surely that's going to make some kind of difference when I stand before my maker. And I am just a warning. I am like a lifeguard standing next to this sign as you dip your toe in this river. And I'm saying, please read the sign with all the urgency I can muster. I'm trying to grab you from falling into this torrent of all history and say, look, 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 My aim is this text's aim. I know of no way to improve upon the simple clarity of verse 6, which I believe is the thrust of this text. My friends, the point of this message is the point of this text. Without faith, it is impossible for you to please God. I want you to just let that sit upon you today. If you lack faith, everything you do in this life, everything you do in this life, will not please him. The good and, of course, the bad and the ugly. In this text, he helps us. Like any good preacher would, he illustrates. You want to know the power of a good illustration? I did my Ph.D. in preaching, so I had to write extensively on how a good sermon is constructed. And one key component of a sermon that is helpful if done properly is a good illustration For a good illustration does not detract from your main point, it sheds light on it. Just like if you're in a dark room and you can't really see uh, what you're wanting to see clearly, what do you do? You, You turn on the light. And when you turn on the light, it shines light on it and you see it. He does this in two ways, two illustrations in this text. One is through the man named Abel and one is through the man named Cain, recorded in verses four and five. I want to show you today these illustrations and help you feel in your bones today that without faith, it is absolutely, positively, without qualification, it is impossible for you to ever please him. And I want to do so by uh, expecting your objections. I want to anticipate those objections you might have today. Some of you are privately, you, you may never utter this out loud, but you're thinking, Kyler, I mean... That might be true. I get that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But, 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 I mean, God knows my heart, right? I mean, He knows that overall I, I am a good person. I, yeah, I fail like the rest, but surely He knows my heart. My word, have you, have you seen these other people? Just turn on the news and you can feel real good about yourself. He knows my heart, right? You ever heard the old adage, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? My friends, I want you to see today that without faith, it is impossible for you to please God with your heart. You may think your heart is in the right place, and I want you to see just how hopelessly wicked mine and yours is, apart from His saving grace that is going to manifest itself through faith within you. And he does so through the example of Abel. Notice in verse 4, he says, by faith, Abel. Now he tells us a few things about this Abel. He says he offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now why was Abel's sacrifice more acceptable than Cain's? I rarely do this, so I'm going to invite you to do it today. Why don't you take your Bible and flip with me, go all the way back to the fourth chapter of the Bible. Just turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 4. You can throw your ribbon in there or keep your finger in there. We're going to look at Genesis 4 just for a few moments because it opens up for us the person and work of a man named Abel. Y'all familiar with Abel? Abel was the fourth person we believe that ever drew a breath on God's green earth. Adam, the first man, Eve, the helpmate, woman, wife, made for Adam. They had their firstborn son, Cain, and their secondborn son, we presume, was a man named Abel. And I want to set some context for you to appreciate what happened when Abel brought his more acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Remember who he was reared by, his mom and dad, Cain and Abel, the ones placed in the paradise of Eden. Do you recall what happens in Genesis 3? They sin against him. God drives them out of the garden. He curses them. Do you remember what he cursed? He curses the ground and says the ground is part of this fallen creation. And then he does one other thing. After cursing the serpent, after cursing Adam and Eve and the ground upon which they live, you may skip it too quickly, but in verse 21 of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, God slays an animal. The first death recorded in human history. The first time blood was drunk into the ground. He slays an animal and clothes Adam and Eve. For in that moment, demonstrating in an almost imperceptible way, demonstrating that once sin entered the world, no human could come into the presence of God without being covered by the blood. Adam and Eve we assume taught their children that they must come before God with a sacrifice. The Bible is not explicit, it is implied. In fact, in verse 24 of Genesis 3, we see that a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword is placed at the perimeter of the Garden of Eden, which informs, infers for us that every time in the Bible you see a cherubim, it is representative of where God meets his people. And so most scholars will therefore conclude that that angel at the Eastern gate of the Garden of Eden, that was the place where presumably Adam and Eve came to sacrifice, to worship God, to come stand before their maker in a way they could no longer. Because remember, they used to walk with them in the cool of the garden. They have been driven out by sin, and now they must come through sacrifice. And so they teach their sons. We assume that Abel and Cain did this practice for years. In fact, the historical context based off the genealogies tells us That Cain was probably around 100 years old, 120 years old when this all transpired. He had been sacrificing for quite some time until we find in Genesis 4 and verse 1 what happens. Adam and Eve, who had a son named Cain, they have these boys. And Cain was, uh, or Abel I should say, was a keeper of the sheep. And Cain was a worker of the ground. And in verse 3 it says, In the course of time at a right, proper time, probably means at the time of sacrifice, what happens? Cain brings to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And what does Abel bring? He brings, well, it says right here, the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And what does verse 4 say? And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. How do we know God had regard? We're not quite clear, but what likely happened, because we see this all throughout the Bible, is God would demonstrate his regard for an acceptable offering by sending fire from heaven to come and consume the offering. Now, what was going on here? Does God just like meat better than vegetables? Why Why did God choose Abel's offering? What was going on in this mix? Hebrews tells us, back in chapter 11. Turn back now. For in Hebrews 11 and verse 4, it says that God found Abel's sacrifice more acceptable than Cain's because it was made by faith. Abel sacrificed that animal because in that moment, the motivation of his heart was simply this. I am desperately, hopelessly wicked, and I am in great need of one to come and accept the punishment I deserve. What was the punishment of sin? What was the punishment for eating of the tree of knowledge and good and evil? Death. I must have death cover me. And he came with the sacrifice of an animal, following in obedience God's good will, his design, his command. Whereas his brother, his elder brother Cain, who was probably a respectable type, probably not altogether different from the older brother in the famed parable of the prodigal son, who thought that he could bring before the Lord all the wonderful things he had done. Look at the fruit of my labor. Look at what a wonderful son and provider I am. Look at this wonderful panoply of vegetables and fruits, so to speak. Look at this. And God had no regard for the work of Cain's hands. Indeed, he calls the motivation behind Cain's heart the way of Cain. And he looks at Abel and says, I accept this not because you are righteous inherently. I accept this because it was done by faith. And notice what verse 4 says in Hebrews 11. He was commended as righteous. Why? Because God had commended him by accepting his gifts. God saw. Abraham's faith and counted it as righteousness. And the import for us today is if this Lord's Day you are tempted to believe the deceptive lie of the evil one, that somehow, some way, who you are, your sincere heart, your private inclinations, those ways you stand out from everybody else, if you're inclined to think that somehow, way, that does give you right standing before God, hear now the word of God. Hear the clarion call of of the Scripture, See the warning sign as I stand here pointing at it. Without faith, it is impossible for you to please him with your heart. The lesson we must draw from Abel and his sacrifice of faith is that your heart motivations manifestly matter. Your very presence this Lord's Day in this room means nothing before the God of the universe if it comes with a, con- a conceited heart. If you have entered this room and your sweet assurance right now is God must be good with me because I sacrificed my mourning for him. Hear the warning of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So what what looks like a heart of faith here? How do you discern whether or not you've come into this room this Lord's Day with a heart of faith? May I just submit just from my own mind and heart at least two ways. One, do you have a heart of obedience? Is your heart bent on obeying him? Do you see God's commands and say, this might not be my way? Indeed, it often is not, but I am submitting myself to your wisdom. Oh God, would you grant me a sincere heart of obedience? Paul calls this the obedience of faith. Is your heart an obedient heart unto God? I wonder this day, Is your heart dependent on him? Do you come as Abel did and say, I desperately need blood to cover me. There is nothing I could ever hope to do to ever please God in and of myself. You see, Abel's sacrifice typified something. When Abel sacrificed his single lamb, it covered his sins. That imagery was repeated in Leviticus when they would do a lamb, uh, um, sac- or an exodus, I should say, a lamb sacrificed at Passover. That lamb would cover the sins not of an individual, but of a family. And then another lamb was sacrificed at the day of atonement in Leviticus. That covered a whole nation until at last, finally, conclusively, wondrously, there was the Lamb of God slain who takes away the sins of the whole world. Abel's faith was pointing us to one glorious truth, that there would one day come a sacrifice who would take your sins away. My friends, you cannot please God without faith. Don't think your heart will please Him. But you may be thinking, okay, I get it. My heart is deceitful and wicked, but if you knew my life, if you actually knew the way I function most days, day in and day out, surely you would recognize that I do kind of live for the Lord. Like I, I live a pretty moral, upright, Existence, if you only knew how many good things my family has been able to do for the sake of others, if you only knew how good my group is, if you only knew that I have a will, that I have a will that surely has pleased God, surely my life somehow, some way has been pleasing to God. Here, once again, the warning of the text without faith, it is impossible for you to please God, both with your heart, and secondly, I want you to see through the life of Enoch. It's impossible to please God with your will. Your very concerted actions in this life are nothing before the maker of all things. And he illustrates this through the life of Enoch. Look in verse 5 where he says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Let's go back to Genesis once again and figure out who on earth is this man named Enoch. Look, if you will, in chapter five of the book of Genesis. I told you I'd ask you to go back. This is my last time. Genesis five, this is like walking through a cemetery. You ever walked through a cemetery? I know you've heard our pastor talk about this much, and I I should confess that, candidly, I actually like this too. My wife and I, early in our marriage, I took her to some restaurant down in Uptown, and there was an old cemetery across the street And when we were done eating, I asked her if she'd want to go across the street with me to look in the cemetery. And she gave me kind of a weird look, but at that point she was awfully sweet to me. And like, okay, well, I said at that point for a reason, you'll get to that in a moment. We walk across into that cemetery and I'm, you know, geeking out. I'm loving this. And Lauren goes, wait, why are we here? (laughs) Why is Genesis 5 here? It's like looking at a bunch of headstones. Just look, if you will, look at verse five. The, he starts listing this refrain and this guy died. Look at verse eight. And he died. Uh, look at verse 11. And he died. Look at verse 14. And he died. Look at verse 17. And he died. And look at verse 20. And he died. But then you get to verses 21 and following, and we meet this man in this family lineage named Enoch. Look at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he died? What does it say? And he was not, for God took him. What's going on there? Enoch, he was seven generations from Adam, the first man. He was halfway between the fall and the flood. He was living and reared in one of the most tumultuous ages of world history. So bad that just uh, his son's lifetime later, God destroys the entire world and only saves one of his great-great-grandchildren, Noah. Enoch lived in one tumultuous time. And Enoch, the Bible describes, unlike all the other men in this lineage, including Adam, he says Enoch walked with God. What does it mean to walk with him? What an epitaph. I can't imagine what an honor it would be on my tombstone to say, Kyler Smith, he walked with God. How do you walk with somebody? I want you to think about this imagery of walking and let this sit upon you as you reflect on how your life, your will is exercised in relationship to our good God. To walk with somebody, first it's going to require that you both have the same desire. Let's just use my marriage as an example. When Lauren and I first started to date, you know, we enjoyed life together, dating like anybody would. But there came a time where I resolved, I I expressed my desire to walk with her, so to speak, the rest of our lives. I signified it through this ring that we both have on our fingers. We had a similar desire. There was an intention from the get-go that we would walk together. So too, for you, walking with God always involves first and foremost, you who were once enemies, becoming friends with him. You gotta be saved to walk with God. God has to have opened your eyes. You gotta know him, you gotta trust him, you gotta see him, you gotta know him. But you who are married know is the sheer fact that Lord and I made vows to one another and put rings on one another's fingers. Did that guarantee we would walk together for the rest of our marriage? Of course, you know far from it. Marriage is hard work. So what also is required to walk with somebody? Not just a shared desire and intent. You've you got to have the same destination. Lord and I both resolved this is not a conditional marriage. I'm not committing to you until I get tired of you. Lord knows please don't commit to me until I'm not worth looking at. We both have a shared destination till death do we part. So too, walking with God involves not just a shared desire. God has expressed His desire as He calls you, and you have responded in faith. It now involves you walking towards the same destination, towards holiness, towards heaven. You are bound for the same place. But just having the same destination in mind and the same desire in mind doesn't guarantee you're going to walk together, does it not? Because... For example, when we drive home from church every day, if you know where I live, you know I have to drive through a thousand roundabouts to get home. And my wife and I routinely, as we're driving our separate cars home, take different paths and she always wins, always. And it's a race, literally, we're, I'm like pressing the speed limit here. We are racing to see who can get home taking different paths. At that moment, we are not walking, so to speak, together. To walk together must require not just a shared desire, not just a shared destination. It requires you be on the same path. You are walking together. You recognize that Jesus is the only way. There are not a multitude of ways. There is but one path. You are not walking with God. In other words, if you are walking apart from Christ, there is but one way. Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. One shared path, one shared destination, one shared desire. But if you have ever been on a walk in the mall, you know this. Just because you are walking with your wife down the same aisle, going to the same store with the same desire, you've also got to be walking at the same pace. And if you've ever seen Lauren and I at the mall, she is always about 20 steps ahead of me. You got to walk at the same pace. You got to walk shoulder to shoulder. Walking with God is going to involve you following Him. It has got to involve you depending on Him. It's got to involve you doing as Enoch evidently did. Enoch walked with God such that Hebrews 11 tells us by faith he was taken up. God literally took him in a way he has only other taken Elijah. There's no other recorded evidence of this. Enoch never died. Why? The Bible isn't crystal clear. It just infers for us simply this that Enoch was taken up as a living, lasting testimony for us. That if you walk with God, if your heart by faith is bent on following Him, if your heart by faith is bent on going where He has called you, if your will is surrendered to Him, He will look at that faith, imperfect as you are, stumbling as you may be, wandering as you so often are, and He will count that faith as righteousness. He will declare you guiltless. He will justify you, the Bible says. It's a sheer miracle, so be warned. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. You can't please Him with your heart. You're not going to be able to please Him with your good will in this life. And may I give you one third and final point, which I derived from verse 6. You, intellectually minded in this room, might be holding out and thinking, yeah, yeah, I get that it's hard to have a perfect will and your heart wanders, but listen, what about your mind? Because the truth is, I'm not an atheist. I believe there's a God. I believe there's supernatural. I believe a lot of the facts, and surely a good God would be gracious enough that if you at least confess with your mouth that there is a God and believe in your heart that there is some sort of supernatural, surely that God would be just to save you. Which is why verse 6 is so critical for us to see that you cannot please God without faith, even with your mind. Try as you might, just acknowledging this is not enough. What does he say in verse 6? you got to believe two things. you got to believe what? It says you got to believe that He is. Notice what it says. you got to believe that God exists. Literally, that says that God is who He says He is and that he rewards, that God is like what he says he's like. My friends, I wonder today, do you believe he is who he says he is? Just turn to the table of contents in your Bible and just read down through the 66 books. And I wonder, do you believe the God that is displayed in all these 66 books? Do you believe the God of Genesis, this God who is the promised one? Do you believe the God of Exodus, this God who is, my friends, the Passover lamb? Do you believe in the God of Leviticus, this God who is our great high priest, Do you believe in the God of Numbers, who is our healer, like that serpent, high and lifted up? Do you believe in the God of Deuteronomy, who is our city of refuge? The God of Joshua, who is the captain of our soul? The God of Judges, who is indeed our judge? What about the God of Ruth, who is our redeemer? Do you believe in the God of Samuel, who is our great prophet? What about the God of kings and chronicles, who is, for lack of a word, our king? Do you believe, my friends, in the God of Ezra and Nehemiah? He who rebuilt the walls, he will rebuild you. He is at work changing you. Do you believe in this God? Do you believe in the God of Esther who is our great advocate like Mordecai was? Do you believe in the God of Job who is sovereign over all of your suffering? Do you believe in the God of Psalms who is the great shepherd of your soul? Do you believe in the God of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs that he is your wisdom? What about the God of the Song of Solomon who is your great love? What about the God of Isaiah? Do you believe he is your suffering servant or the God of Jeremiah who is in fact, my friends, he is a weeping prophet who weeps for sinners like you and me? Do you believe in the God of Ezekiel and Daniel, who is the great son of man, that ancient of days? What about the God of Joel, who is the one who sends the spirit to baptize? Or Amos, who is our great burden bearer? What about Obadiah, the God who is our savior? Or maybe the God of Jonah, who is this great God of forgiveness? How about the God of Micah, who is our great messenger? Or Nahum, who is our great avenger? What about the God of Habakkuk, this great evangelist, or Zephaniah, our great restorer. How about Haggai, he who is our cleansing fountain, Zechariah, who is our merciful father, or the great final book of the Old Testament, Malachi, who is that great son of righteousness with healing in his wings. My friends, do you believe in that God of the Old Testament? You know that's not the whole Bible. You just turn but a page. And now we behold the God Of the Gospels. Do you believe in the God of Matthew? Who is this great, great Savior? What about the God of Mark, who is, our suffer, who is our great suffering servant? Or Luke, the son of man? John, who is the son of God? Acts, who is our risen Lord? What about the God of the letters uh, to Rome, who is our great justifier? Or of the letters to the church at Corinth? Do you believe in this God, who is our sin bearer? How about the God of Galatians, who is our redemption? Or maybe the God of the letter to the church at Ephesus, who is our great riches, or to the church at Philippi, who is our great supplier. Do you believe in that God? Do you believe that God exists? This God exists. What about the God of Colossians, who is God made visible? Or the God of the letters to the church at Thessalonica, who is our great returning king? What about the God who is written to the letters in First and 2 Timothy, who is indeed our mediator? Or the God of the book of Titus, who is our blessed hope? Do you believe in this God? What about the God of Philemon, who is our dear beloved, faithful friend? Or the God of Hebrews, our great study of the day, who is indeed our blood atonement? What about the God of James, who is our great physician, our healer? Or the God of the letters to Peter, who is our chief shepherd? What about the God of the letters from John, first, second, and third John, who is our everlasting love? Indeed, the God of Jude, who is the only wise God, and you can finish it up with the book of Revelation. Do you believe? Believe in the God finally revealed in Revelation, who is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you believe in that God? That is not meant as a performance. It is meant as a plea. Do you trust that God? Which if you notice, in all of those descriptions therein, they all demonstrate one great theme. Our good, sovereign, almighty God is one who rewards what church attendance he is one who rewards goodness he is one who rewards faith and so my earnest plea and conclusion this day is do you know this god And have you trusted him by faith? I pray this world will haunt you tonight and in the coming week. Without faith, oh dear church, it is impossible for you to please him. You will not please him with your heart. You will not please him with your will. You cannot please him with your mind. But let's turn the coin over as a great punctuation mark to our study this day. With faith, the impossible is made possible. Why don't you join me as we pray? And I'm going to ask God to work a miracle to grant you this day the priceless, matchless gift of faith. Father in heaven, would you come and move in this room? I'm asking the Lord that you would come and work a work that is utterly impossible for me. And that is to stir in the souls of the men and women gathered in this room this day for the countless joining online. Would you come, O God? And would you bring forth faith? Oh, Father, I pray that you would stir an unusual, remarkable, unprecedented trust in this room. I pray all of us would heed your clear warning that without this, without this precious gift of faith, it is impossible to please you. And so may we not be found in the ridiculous position. Of attempting the impossible which is insanity rather Lord may all of us humble ourselves before you and by faith trust that there is coming gonna come a day where we are going to see you are who you say you are you are like what you said you like and our only hope on that moment when we stand before your throne is grace which we receive by faith alone, in Christ alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to your feet as we stand, as Gerald leads us in a song of response. Why don't we cry out together to this God we have uncovered, and let's declare with one accord of faith that he is indeed our only hope. Let's sing.